You guys can have a seat and turn to the book of Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians chapter 1 is where we'll spend a lot of our time this morning. We'll actually look at a number of different passages. Well, I get to wrap up this series on the big ideas of the Bible, and I'm grateful this morning that I get to look at this particular topic with you because salvation, I like to think of it as it's kind of like my Alabama sermon. Um, if you think about a football season, every game is important. Like, you've got to go out and play. Every game, your team needs to try to win every game. But certain games rise to the top in terms of how they, important they are. Like, when we play at Alabama, the whole nation is watching. Like, your whole feeling about the season depends on those four quarters and how they go. Well, it, it's the same with our sermon this morning. In this whole series on the big ideas of the Bible, every sermon is important. We're not going to waste your time with fluff. But this sermon rises to the top because it's about your eternal destiny. This sermon on salvation, this is about how you personally find deliverance from sin and death so that you can spend eternity with God in heaven. And so I'm really excited to look at this topic with you this morning, and I want to begin with a definition. What do we mean by that word salvation? We use it all the time. We're in church. It's like the most common word we use. What does it mean to save? What does it mean when we talk about salvation? Well, we'll talk about it from the perspective of the Bible, because you're in church, so you should think about what, what does the Bible mean when it says save or salvation, and most people assume that what the Bible means is go to heaven, that salvation means escape hell and go to heaven when you die, but that's not actually the case. The word save or salvation in both Hebrew and Greek, it's not a technical term for going to heaven when you die. It's actually just a really everyday word. It's a really common word, both in Hebrew and in Greek, that people use to refer to simply deliverance. To deliver someone from something bad. That's all that the word means in both Hebrew and Greek. And so whenever you come across the word save or salvation in your Bible, you need to ask yourself, what is this person being delivered from? And there's a lot of answers. When you go through the Bible, you'll see some funny ones. Like in the book of John, save means to wake somebody up. Like they're trapped in sleep and you've got to wake them up. Uh, it can mean to save somebody from prison, to release them from prison. It can mean to heal somebody with a sickness. You give them medicine and they are saved from sickness. It can also have these spiritual overtones, salvation from the wrath of God or the penalty of sin or the power of sin. So it's a very generic word, but this morning we want to talk about particularly those last three uses of the word. Save or salvation in the Bible when it's talking about your spiritual salvation from sin and death and the wrath of God. That's what I like to call salvation with a capital capital S. Salvation with a capital S. God saving us from wrath and from sin. What does the Bible reveal to us about salvation with a capital S? Well, first, that it's big. That's, a, that's really probably the most important thing you need to get from this morning is that salvation, that word that we use all the time at church, it is huge. It's probably much bigger than, than you've even thought about before. A lot of Christians have a very small view of salvation. Salvation is just a get-out-of-hell card to them. It's like a ticket that you get when you die that gets you on the heaven-bound bus. Well, that's a, a really small view of salvation. That reminds me of the person who goes to the store and buys an iPhone, and all they ever use it for is to make phone calls. It will do that relatively well, but there's so much more that it will do. You can check your email, you can get a map, you can watch a video, you can chat with your friends, you can message, you can catch Pokemon, you can do all kinds of stuff with an iPhone. Only using it to call somebody is a waste. 
Well, that's the same idea when it comes to salvation. Salvation will get you to heaven. It includes that. But it includes so much more. It's so much bigger than just a get out of hell card. So salvation, when you look at salvation in Scripture, there's at least three things that salvation tells you about or talks about. There's an event that happens at a moment in time when God saves you. That's how we usually think of the word. The moment when you trust in Jesus as your Savior and God does something big in your life. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. That's actually the only thing I have time to talk about. But that's only a small piece of salvation because salvation doesn't end the moment you trust in Jesus. Actually, it's just begun. Because next comes a process that we call sanctification, where God grows you to be more and more like Jesus. And that process of sanctification is so big and so important, it got a sermon of its own this summer. You've already talked about sanctification. But salvation isn't just an event and a process. It's also a destiny. It's about where you're headed next. When Jesus comes back and you are resurrected and you spend eternity with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth, we call that glorification. And that future, that destiny that's in store for you is so big and so important that that also got a sermon of its own. So you're having like three sermons on salvation this summer. It's a huge topic. All we're going to look at this morning is the event. The event of salvation, when you trust in Jesus, what happens to you in that moment, according to the Bible? Well, when we look at the event of salvation, the first thing that we learn as we study the Bible and what it says about salvation is that the event of salvation goes by many names. When God created this thing called salvation, he recognized that it was so big and so transformative in your life that one word or one name wouldn't suffice for it. That's actually not surprising. I don't know if you've noticed, but when something is really big, really important, it tends to get many names. Like think about Babe Ruth, greatest baseball player ever, right? How many names did his fans give him? Like a ton. They actually make fun of that in movies. He went by the Babe, the Bambino, the Sultan of Swat, the King of Swing, the Terrible Titan, the Colossus of Clout, and many others. The bigger, the greater something is, the more names we give it. And so God gave us lots of names in the Bible for the event of salvation. And each name looks at salvation from a different perspective. So I'm going to walk you through six of the most important names for the event of salvation that you find in the Bible. This is not all of them, but it's six of the big ones. So the first name for salvation that we get comes to us in chapter 1, verse 7. There's actually two names here. We'll look at both of them. Look at verse 7. It says, in him, that is Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. I want to start with that word forgiveness. First name for the event of salvation that we're going to talk about is forgiveness. And forgiveness looks at salvation from the personal perspective. Because what is forgiveness? Well, forgiveness is to let go of something. Don't know if you knew that that's what that word means in Greek. It means you open your hand and you let something go. So when we sin, we are not sinning against a religion, right? You go out and sin, you're not sinning against Christianity. You're sinning against a person, against God. You've offended God. You've done wrong to God. God has the right to hold on to that offense, to hold it against you, to remember it, to think about it. Forgiveness is when God opens his hands and he lets go of all the bad things you've ever done. 
Well, the Bible tells us that at the moment you trust in Jesus as your Savior, God opens his hand and lets go of all your sins, not just the ones in the past, but even the ones in the future, because God stands above time, so it's all one to him. He's holding all of your sins, and he lets them all go. Past, present, and future, they're washed away. That's the personal side of salvation. We call it forgiveness. The second word or name that I want to talk about for salvation looks at salvation from the legal perspective, and we see this word throughout the book of Romans. So Romans chapter 3, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Justified or justification pictures salvation from the perspective of a court case. You're in a courtroom. God is the judge. He's up on the bench. You are the criminal party. You're you're the one who is guilty. You know you're guilty. This is one of those really easy court cases where they don't even need a lot of evidence because it's open and shut. You know you did the wrong thing. And so God is the judge. Justification was when the judge looks at you, bangs his gavel, and says, not guilty. You are acquitted. You are in the right in the eyes of the court. So that's salvation from a legal perspective. The instant that you trust in Jesus, God declares you to be in the right forever. It's a legal declaration. He bangs his gavel and it's done. You'll never face condemnation in that courtroom again. That's salvation from a legal perspective. Third word or name for salvation is back in verse 7. It's the other word we saw there. In him, that is in Jesus, we have redemption. Redemption looks at your salvation from an economic perspective. It's about a payment being made. Redemption is when you buy someone out of slavery. So what we need to recognize is that all human beings are slaves. That's just our nature. We have to be slaves. So we're born into slavery to some really bad things. We're born into slavery to sin and Satan. We belong to sin and to Satan. But the moment that we trust in Jesus, Jesus redeems us. He buys us out of slavery to sin and Satan so that now we belong to Jesus. We're his. The easiest way to, to picture what goes on in redemption, if, if you ever bought a used car, you know, you get a blue sheet of paper, at least in the state of Texas. I don't know if it's blue everywhere, but it's a title. And on that title, you fill in previous owner, and you fill in new owner, and you fill in the date of the transaction. Well, in this illustration, you're the car. And on your title form, previous owner says sin and Satan, new owner says Jesus' date of transaction is the moment you trusted in him as your Savior. You legally no longer belong to sin and Satan, now you belong to Jesus. That's redemption. That's the third name that God gives to the event of salvation. Fourth name that God gives, let's build this out by looking at verse 1 of chapter 2. Go to chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. He's describing all human beings before we trust in Jesus. We're dead in sin. That means we can't do anything but sin. We can't please God. We're spiritually dead even though we're physically alive. But then something changes. Look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Make alive. That's getting at the word regeneration. So you take someone or something that's dead and you bring it to life. That's why we often talk about believers as born again. You were spiritually dead, now you've been born again, you've been regenerated. So spiritually speaking, what what your life looks like, your physical life began 
the day you were conceived in your mother's womb. Your spiritual life began the day you trusted in Jesus as your Savior. Now, if you've trusted in Jesus, you are completely alive, both physically and spiritually alive. When I was a kid, uh, my younger brother, uh, on one particular day when he was about six or seven, he accepted Jesus as his Savior um, with my mom at our house. And so my mom took him to the kitchen and baked him a birthday cake, which always seemed kind of weird to me, but now I understand it. She was trying to show him. This moment in your life is as important as the day you were born. You were spiritually dead, now you are spiritually alive. This is the moment you are born again, you're regenerated. So that looks at salvation from almost like a biological perspective. You are made alive. Fifth word that the Bible uses to describe what happens to us the moment we're saved is found in the book of Colossians chapter 1. Paul says, although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. Again, he's describing what life was like for us before we trusted in Jesus. We were God's enemies. We were hostile towards God, but then something changed. Yet he, that is Jesus, has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Reconciled, that means to make peace between two warring parties. So we were hostile to God. We were God's enemies. God loved us, but we hated God. We were separated from Him, but Jesus brought us together. He reconciled us. Now we are friends of God. That's the idea of reconciliation. Now reconciliation is a big deal, but the sixth word, this final name I'm going to give you, is even bigger. Reconciliation, big deal. This one's even bigger. Look again at Ephesians chapter 1. Let's look at verse 5. Paul says, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will. Last word that I'm going to give you today for the event of salvation is adoption. And adoption looks at salvation from the relational or family perspective. Adoption is when you take somebody who's not in your family and now they're in your family. They're your son. They're your daughter. Adoption is a big deal. To me, it's the most important of all six words that I've given you. Because adoption is the greatest of all of them. Imagine for a moment, um, it would have been gracious if all that God did was forgive you and then sent you on your way. That'd be a big deal, right? Forgives you all your sins and then, okay, go have a nice life. But God did something more than that because he took sinners who were his enemies, who did hateful things to him and said hateful things about him. Not only did he forgive us, but he brought us into his family. That's way bigger, right? Think about it. If you are in a fight with your neighbor, your neighbor does something awful to you, really a jerk to you, well, it's one thing to forgive your neighbor, but then he goes in his house and you go in your house and you don't have to see him again. But adoption, that's so much bigger. Now your neighbor lives with you. You see him every morning. You have breakfast with him. You're constantly with this person who's hurt you. Adoption is so much bigger than any of these other words because it's so much more incredible. It's God not only forgiving you, but welcoming you into his own family, his own house, not just for this life, but for eternity. When I think about adoption, what it brings to my mind is um, what happened in Dallas a couple months ago. A sniper killed a number of police officers, and that sniper was killed. But I want you to imagine for a moment, what if the sniper was not killed? And for some reason, he was not found guilty. He was let out of prison. And one of the families of the police officers who was killed decided to not only forgive that man, but to actually adopt him into their own home. So now they sleep with him every night. They have breakfast with him every morning and dinner every night. And they pay for his college and they buy him a car and they call him son. 
Does that sound impossible? Yet that's exactly what God did for you and for me, because we were just like the sniper. We were sinners who sinned against God and, and offended him and hurt him. And God took it personally. I don't know if you ever thought about sin that way. When you sin, you are grieving God in a very personal way. You are emotionally affecting the creator of the universe when you sin. How do I know that? Read the Old Testament. Listen to the words that God uses for the sin of Israel. Look at Jesus when he was riding into Jerusalem that last time and he crests the hill and he looks down at Jerusalem and he weeps over the sin that he sees. Our, God, our sin emotionally hurts God and yet God chooses not only to forgive that sin, to let it go, but to say, hey, come into my family so that I see you every day forever. That's adoption and that's the pinnacle of it all. And so the event of salvation is a huge thing. It's so big that God needed lots of words to describe it. These are the six big ones. It gets a little bit complicated, though, trying to remember all of these words and what they mean. And so God very kindly gave us a summary term called eternal life. And when people read the phrase eternal life in the Bible, they usually think, oh, that's when I go to heaven. No, that's not. You actually have eternal life right now, according to the Gospel of John. Eternal life is the summary. It's the whole package. It's like the gift that God gave you and all the other stuff is inside it. If you have eternal life, you have forgiveness, justification, redemption, reconciliation, all that. It's all true for you the moment that you receive eternal life. So eternal life is a summary term to describe salvation. Salvation, this event that happens the moment you trust in Jesus, it's huge. Absolutely, mind-blowingly huge. That's the first thing to know about it. Second thing that the Bible tells us about the event of salvation is that it is both free and costly. And that sounds impossible. How can something be both free and costly? Let me explain each side of that. We'll start with the free part. Salvation is free. Look with me at chapter 2 of Ephesians. Let's pick it up in verse 4. It says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast." may notice a particular word repeated multiple times, three times, actually, in that short passage, grace. Salvation is by grace. So what is grace? Well, grace is when you get something good you don't deserve. You, you didn't earn it, not even a part of it. You were just given a gift. That word is also used. That's grace. When Paul says that salvation is by grace, what he's trying to help you understand is that salvation isn't a reward. What's a reward? Well, that's when you do something good to get something good. Right? So you do good stuff, and then they give you a nice reward. Well, that's not salvation, because that would be by works on the front end, and Paul's absolutely clear. No, no, no works are in this equation. So salvation is not a reward, but it's more than that. Paul's going further than that, because salvation is also not a bargain. What's a bargain? Well, a bargain is when you get something nice for a reduced price. Like these pants. Julie got me these pants for three bucks. She's like the queen of discount shopping. I like these pants a lot. Three dollars. That is nice, but that is not free. I still had to work for these pants. Now, not nearly as long as if they cost me $30, but they weren't free. I still had to work some part for them. And Paul's absolutely clear. You don't work at all. If salvation is a discount, then there is still room for your pride because you still did your $3 worth of work. Okay, so salvation isn't a bargain. Finally, salvation is not a loan. What's a loan? 
You get something good now, you pay for it later. That's how a lot of people think about salvation. You get it now for free, and then you spend the rest of your life doing good things to keep it or prove to yourself that you have it. Well, no. Paul is absolutely clear. There are no works in this thing. If it's a loan, it's not grace. You do know that, right? If you go out and pick up a car today on a zero down loan, that's not grace. That's not a gift, right? Dealership isn't gifting you a car. You're going to pay for it for years to come. That's not grace. Grace is something that does not have strings attached by its definition. If somebody gives you a gift and they attach strings, that was not a gift. That was a loan. Grace means no works on the front end or the back end. Salvation is by grace alone. Paul drives that point home in Romans 3. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Not justified by faith plus a few works of the law. Not justified by faith followed by works of the law. Justified by faith alone. Works play absolutely no role. So salvation is absolutely free. And yet here's the thing I want to make sure you understand. Even though your salvation is absolutely free, that does not mean it's cheap. Actually, your salvation is stunningly expensive. Your salvation is actually the most costly thing ever purchased in the history of the human race. But who paid the cost? Well, Chapter 1, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. Your salvation is staggeringly costly. It costs the life of the Son of God. And let's think about value. Let's think about this value proposition for a moment. What was the cost paid for your salvation? Well, Jesus had to die. And who is Jesus? Jesus is the Son of God. And according to John chapter 1, the Son of God is He through whom the entire universe was made. And so Jesus is the Creator. And by just simple logic, the Creator is always more valuable than the creation. And so someone who is more valuable than all of the universe put together was sacrificed in order for you to have eternal life. Therefore, your eternal life that you right now have in yourself is is more valuable than the entire universe put together. There has never been a more costly thing given to a human being than your possession of eternal life. It is free for you, but that does not mean it's cheap. It is the most expensive thing that has ever existed. Jesus paid the price so that we could have it for free. That's how I can say that the event of salvation is both free and costly. Absolutely free for you, staggeringly costly for God. Third thing that the Bible reveals about the event of salvation, it is both ancient and instant. Ancient and instant. How, how do we understand that? How do we wrap our minds around that? Well, let me start with the ancient part. Looking in at the book of Ephesians chapter 1, let's start in verse 4. It says, Just as He, that is God, chose us in Him, that is Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him, in love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will. Predestined. Now we're getting into some deep waters. Predestination, election, choosing. This subject goes right over my head. Election, predestination is too big for me. My finite mind cannot wrap itself around this topic. I can't make sense of all of it, but there are a few truths from this passage that I can hang on to. 
a few truths about predestination from Ephesians chapter 1. The first truth that I see in this passage when we think about predestination, this passage is telling me that God chose particular people by name in eternity past to be saved. How do I know that? Because of the word adopted. How do you adopt a kid? You don't go adopt a group of nameless kids. You adopt a particular child by name. That's what God did for you. In eternity past, before anything was made, God, who stands above time, so he sees all time, all the time, he looked into the future and he saw you, and he knew everything that you would ever do, even stuff you don't know you're going to do. He saw it all, and he knew your name, and he chose you by name to be saved. That's predestination. So that's the first thing that I see about it. God chose particular people in eternity past to be saved. Second thing that I see from this passage is that what motivated God to choose these particular individuals is love, not merit. You were chosen by God not because you were more likely to believe. You weren't chosen because you would be a better person because Ephesians 2 verse 1, we were all equally dead. Dead. How good is a dead person? Not at all. You brought nothing to the table. When God looked at you, he did not see anything that made you better than your neighbor. So why did God choose me and not my neighbor? I don't know. But I know it's not because I was better than him. I was no more likely to believe. I was no more likely to obey. God simply in love chose me. It's, it's love. I, I don't know anything more than that. Third thing that I discover about predestination from these verses that we read is that it is designed by God to give us peace. Predestination was never meant to be a subject that theologians debate about, write books about. It was designed by God to give believers peace. Why? Well, because I want you to think about your salvation. When did your salvation, you personally, when did your salvation begin? wasn't the moment you believe in Jesus. It wasn't the moment you were born. It was infinite ages ago. Your salvation began infinite eons ago when God already knew you. Everything about you was future, and yet God, who stands above time, he already saw it all, and he chose you by name. That is when your salvation began, in the infinite past, when God already knew everything about everything you would ever do. And so if that is true, then there's nothing that I can do today in the present that is going to so surprise God and shock God that he's going to suddenly regret having chosen me. No, he already knew all of it. And so because my salvation was decided infinite ages ago, it is secure in the present. There's nothing I can do today that can overturn the sovereign choice of God in the infinite past. Election is meant to give you peace. Your salvation was decided before the universe was made. So it's not going to change now. So your salvation is ancient, and yet it is also instant. You are saved the moment that you believe. Chapter 2, verse 8 was clear, for by grace you've been saved through faith. Your faith matters. Your salvation happens the moment that you decide. What is faith? Faith is persuasion that something's true. So at some point in your life, you become persuaded that Jesus existed, that he died for your sins and rose from the dead to give you eternal life. You say, I I believe that's true. I'm persuaded that that's true. And at that moment, you are saved. And so that begs this mysterious question. Are you saved because God chose you in the infinite past or because you chose God in this life? And the answer is yes. Both are true. 
I don't know how both are true. This is way beyond what my finite mind can understand. God's mind is much bigger than mine. He can see how both of those are true, but they are. Bible's very clear. Actually, Ephesians is very clear. You can prove both predestination and human free will in Ephesians chapter 1. All you need is one chapter. We already looked at predestination. That's verses 4 and 5. Now look at verse 13. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Yes, God elects you in eternity past, and yet in the present you must hear the gospel. That's the good news. That's what that word means. The good news that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead so you could have eternal life as a free gift. You hear that good news and you're persuaded it's true. You believe it's true and salvation happens. So your salvation is both ancient and instant. It happens in the moment you believe and that begs the question, the most important question in the morning, have you believed? Has there been some moment in your life when you were persuaded that the good news about Jesus is true? That Jesus really existed, really died for your sins, really rose from the dead, so you could have eternal life. Maybe it, it, there hasn't been that moment. Maybe you haven't yet believed that. And I thought I'd take a few minutes this morning to walk through the most common reasons people have given me over the years for why they've chosen not yet to believe in Jesus. So if I'm talking to somebody who's not yet a Christian, we're talking about the gospel, often they will respond after I've told them the gospel, well, Blake, it's just too hard to believe. It's just too hard to believe in a God I can't see and in the virgin birth and miracles and resurrection when I haven't seen any of that kind of stuff and I can't go into the science lab and prove any of that stuff. It's just too hard to believe it. And to that person, I say, yes, it is really hard to believe. I agree. It's hard to believe in a God we can't see and miracles that we can't prove. So why do I believe? Well, this is when I tell them, you know what, it's not because I wanted to believe. It's not because I had some emotional response. It's not because I took a blind leap in the dark. I believe because of the historical evidence. Yeah, I can't see God, and I can't reproduce miracles, but I can read through a bunch of evidence that God has left us in history. God has given us an incredible wealth of evidence for the truth of the gospel, and particularly for the truth of the resurrection. The great part about the resurrection, if you can prove the resurrection happened, then all of Christianity is true. All hangs on the resurrection. What you may not realize is, but there is an incredible amount of evidence in the Bible and in secular history that 2,000 years ago, a man walked out of a tomb after being crucified three days earlier. And those historical facts are what led me to believe. Yes, faith is hard, but it's not impossible. The evidence is out there if you're just willing to sit down and read it. And so on our website, if you go to Frequently Asked Questions, look down until you see why, did, why do we believe Jesus rose from the dead. Click on that link. It'll take you to an article. We'll walk you through the top four reasons from history why we believe Jesus actually did rise from the dead. The evidence is there. If you'll just study it, if you'll just look at it, it can lead you to faith just like it led me to faith. Okay, so it's hard to believe, but it's not impossible. It's tons of evidence if you're just willing to look at it. Second reason people give me for not believing, Blake, is just too good to be true. Blake, you're telling me that God gives away the most valuable thing in human history, eternal life, as an absolutely free gift, and there's nothing I have to do that's crazy. No one does that. You got to do something, right? You got to do some good work. So it has to be something that you bring to the table. Well, that is what every other religion will tell you. Yep. Every other religion gives you something to do. 
because they believe it. You can't give it away for free. So we got to give you the five pillars, or we got to give you the law, or we got to give you a sacrificial system, or we got to give you a noble path. We must give you something to do. It's what every other religion on earth says. Why? Because that makes sense to us. We adults, we actually don't like getting free stuff. Did you know that about yourself? Your kids do. Your kids are all over free stuff. But at some point in life, we grow up and we become adults, and all of a sudden, we don't actually like getting something for free. If a good friend of yours comes and gives you something for free, how do you feel? Awkward, right? Somebody gives me something really valuable for free, I'm thinking to myself, how am I going to repay this? Do I need to go mow their lawn? Maybe I can fix their car. I got to do something. At a minimum, I'm going to write a thank you note. What is a thank you note? It's pride. It's adult pride. We're trying to pay them back. We're trying to show I'm worthy to some extent of this incredible gift you've given me. Every other religion on earth caters to human pride. It gives us something to do so that we can feel good about the gift we've received. But God says no to that. Christianity says, no, there's no room for pride. There's no room for works. It's an absolutely free gift. That actually, it's kind of cool. That actually is one of the reasons I believe Christianity has to be true because what adult in their right mind would invent a religion where you give away the most valuable thing in human history for free? No adult's going to do that. That's nuts. Christianity is so nuts that the only logical explanation is that it's from God. It is crazy that Christianity is so free, and that is proof that it's true. Third thing I'll often hear from people, well, there's just too many hypocrites. Why should I believe in Christianity? When I see so many awful Christians who are prideful and bigoted and racist and mean and greedy and liars and immoral, I've seen so many hypocrites, and when somebody tells me that, um, I just grieve with them because it's true. Yeah, we've all known a lot of people out there who call themselves Christian, maybe they are, maybe they aren't, but who don't live very Christ-like lives. They live awful lives. And when I see that, and when I hear somebody struggling with Christianity because of those hypocrites, what I encourage them to remember is that hypocrites are part of every group on earth. There is no religious group, no political group, no ethnic group that is not inflicted with these outliers who do not live up to the values of the group. And so my encouragement to you, if that's your struggle, if you just don't want to believe in Jesus because of all the hypocritical Christians you've seen, my encouragement is, well, please, would you be willing to give us one more chance? Give us one more chance to show to you the love of Jesus with our lives. I've been at Grace Bible Church now for 22 years, and I've seen incredible sacrifice and incredible love and incredible generosity in this place. And my prayer for you is that you'll give us one more chance to show to you the genuine love of Jesus. Fourth reason, and probably the most frequent that I've heard for why someone won't believe, is that Christianity is just too exclusive. Blake, I love this idea of a God who loves me, who wouldn't like that. Like the idea of him giving me eternal life for free sounds great. I'm even okay with the whole Jesus thing. My problem is, is that you say Christianity is the only way. The problem is that you say that Christianity is true, every other religion is false. I'm not okay with that. Who are you to tell me what's true? Who, who are you to judge that? Christianity just sounds too exclusive for me. Well, when I hear that, my response to that is, I, I understand where you're coming from. It completely makes sense, but here's the problem. And, and you already know this, even if you haven't recognized it. Truth, by its very nature, is exclusive. Truth is exclusive. If something is true, you are counting on the fact that its opposite is false. For you to live in a logical universe that makes sense, you need truth to be exclusive. 
That's how it must work. And, and you know that's true. You, you act in that truth all the time. Many of you are fans of the Serial podcast. First season was all about a guy named Adnan Syed and whether he murdered his girlfriend. Recognize with me for a moment, Adnan either murdered his girlfriend or did not murder his girlfriend. It cannot be both, right? There's no middle option. It is one or the other. The truth is out there. It's not a matter of opinion. So either God exists or God does not exist. It cannot be both. Jesus either rose from the dead or he did not rise from the dead. It can't be both. And if he rose from the dead, then Christianity is true and authoritative and you must believe it. Or if he didn't rise from the dead, then you are all wasting your time listening to me this morning. There is no middle option. It cannot be both. Truth, by its very nature, is exclusive. And therefore, every adult on earth must face a moment where they decide whether they believe that the claims of Christianity are true or false. It cannot be both. So if you are reaching a point in your life where you finally feel persuaded that Christianity is true, that the claims of Jesus are true, what do you do with that? Well, you don't go work for it. All you do is say to God, thank you. That's the response God wants to the gospel. We just say to God, thank you that you love me so much that you sent your son to die for my sins and rise from the dead so I could have eternal life. The moment you thank God for the gift of eternal life that Jesus purchased for you, you're saved. The event of salvation has happened for you. And that that has happened for many of us in the room. We have trusted in Jesus. And so the question for us as we leave here this morning is who are we going to tell? Who are you going to tell about Jesus? We all know that to whom much is given, much is required. That's just common sense. If you've been given much in life, you are expected by society, by the world, to do much for the good of other people, to share your wealth with others. But here's the problem. If you think that you're poor, then you do not feel the responsibility to share. If you don't think you have much, then you don't feel responsible to give much. So here's what we're going to do for a moment. I want to help you understand what you have already if you've trusted in Jesus. Let's walk through the logic. Eternal life, what did it cost? costs the life of the Son of God, who is the creator of the universe. So therefore, logical truth, he's more valuable than the entire universe. So you have something that costs more than the entire universe to purchase so that you could have it. So that means, therefore, you already have something that is more valuable than anything anyone has ever received, including $50 billion. You're richer than any billionaire on earth. You have something that is more desirable than anything. You have more prestige than any movie star. Jennifer Aniston has nothing on you. What that means is that if you've trusted in Jesus, you are the lucky ones. You are the top tenth of the top tenth of the top one percent. You are the luckiest person on earth because you have eternal life and the world does not. You just need to flip that switch in your mind. Every time you feel poor, every time you feel disadvantaged, every time you feel behind the eight ball, you need to flip the switch and remember, no, I'm the lucky one. I'm the luckiest person in this town. I'm the luckiest person in the whole world because I have eternal life and it's infinitely more valuable than anything anyone else has. And so if you are the lucky ones, if you have been given much, which you have, then you are responsible to share much. It means that you need to go out and tell people about this incredible wealth you have in Jesus. We are responsible 
to share our wealth of eternal life with other people. And so when I close in a moment, what I'm going to ask you to do is picture in your mind, you can be doing that right now, I want you to picture the face of a person you know, maybe a family member, a coworker, a neighbor, um, a classmate, somebody in your life who doesn't yet know Jesus as their Savior. I want you to picture their face right now. You can close your eyes if you want. Just see their face, and in your mind, say their name. In a moment when we pray, I want you to pray for this particular person that God would open their eyes to the truth of the gospel so that they would understand that it's true and that God would use you to tell them the good news about Jesus. Okay, so let's, let's pray and ask God to use us. Heavenly Father, we, we praise you and we thank you that because of Jesus, we are the lucky ones. We are richer than any billionaire. We are more privileged than any movie star. We, we are the richest people on earth because we have eternal life and it is more valuable than all of the universe put together. We praise you and thank you that you purchased eternal life for us by giving your son. We thank you, Jesus, that you were willing to die for us and rise for us so that we could have eternal life as a free gift. We praise you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you that you have saved us and we acknowledge how good it is and we pray that we would hold salvation as such a precious thing that we would be motivated to share it with other people. We pray, Heavenly Father, please use us this week to share the good news of Jesus with somebody who doesn't yet know him. And for each of us right now, as we picture a face in our minds, a name in our minds of somebody who doesn't yet know Jesus, God, please, please save this person. We pray, God, that you would open their eyes. We pray that you would help them to see how wonderful and how true the gospel is. We pray that you would help them to see their need for a Savior, convict them of their sin, help them to get to the end of themselves, to see that they can't fix their lives on their own, that they need help. We pray, God, that you would get them to that place and that you would then use us to tell them the good news about Jesus, about eternal life. Help us to be bold and courageous and faithful. Help us to love these people enough that we would be willing to take the risk to share Jesus with them. We pray that you would use our words, that you would empower them through your spirit to draw these men and women to yourself for salvation. We pray that you would grow your family, that you would adopt new men and women into your family this week here in Bryan College Station. Thank you for your goodness and your faithfulness to us. In the name of your son, Jesus, who made it possible, we pray. Amen. Well, thank you guys for coming out today. One quick favor. We've got, uh, if you could just, wherever you are, put your chair up. Deacons are going to pull out the racks. And if you'll just put your chair on the rack, that will save us a ton of time as we clean up this place and get it ready for kids who are coming back, like, immediately. So, thank you guys. See you next week.